the old world is ending, and we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the structural problems in our world and the real solutions that we have today to transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse into a collaborative and sustainable futuristic society that serves all life. You may think it's an impossible dream, but the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Zachary Marlowe, Matt Holton, and Amanda Smith. And together, when we can move past this economic absurdity to come together and actualize our collective potential to create something completely new, we are Moneyless Society. A world without money, nations, law, borders, or authority figures of any kind. Does that frighten you? Does it evoke images of burning cop cars, rioting, hoarding of resources, bricks crashing through windows, looting, slavery, the will of the tyrant dominating the people in a world on fire? In a word, anarchy. But of course, that hellish vision is just the world of today, with its multiple cartels of government structures and corporate domination, its legions of police and militaries establishing order with an iron fist to secure resources at gunpoint and subjugate the masses to fuel its industrial machine that seeks to devour and order the world, the world of the so-called free market. People always ask me, if there wasn't money and everything was free, What's to stop Bob from hoarding food? And to that, I just point to the existing system where six people have hoarded the resources of literally half the planet. Where an ironclad tyrant that we cannot see or face controls everything about our world. But it's more than a dollar. Money itself is just an arbitrary, meaningless symbol for the system that gives it value. As we are working to envision the end of money, it had a beginning. It was not the factory setting on human life and social organization, and I roundly rebuke the claim that there will always be some form of money to economize resources and distribute power. Power. That's what it all comes down to. Money itself is just a thing. It's a way to quantify power. And in this episode, we will seek to dig deeper into the roots of that power structure, to the impacted hierarchy, the order of one above many that perpetuates it. Our guest today is the revolutionary anarchist, theorist, writer, Twitter personality, and YouTuber, Daniel Berrien, or as he's known to his thousands of followers, Anarch. So Daniel, uh, enlighten us. What is the root of the power structure that the financial edifice conceals? The mind that commands the invisible hand to tighten down on our throats. What is hierarchy? Yeah, so that's a big question for us to start with, right? I would say insofar as that we're starting with the discussion of money, uh, I think the way you've begun by saying that money is a way to quantize power is a very good way for us to understand how this system is structured. Mostly the problem that we experience with hierarchy is that as power is alienated away from the people, the people become less and less able to control the flow of their lives. They have less and less control over their society. They are themselves unable to uh, express and uh, achieve their desires because the system has taken enormous, an enormous amount of the power which would exist latent within the masses and it has put it under the control and command of a very small group of people. So really this process of capital accumulation 
is the process of power being monopolized by a group of people. Um, this is not, of course, to say that the very existence of money itself does this. It is to say that money is a sort of strata by which we can, uh, uh, wh where people can actually accumulate this power as a, uh, as, a, as a quanta, which is to say, you know, dollars and cents. Um, that's, that's the role that, that money plays. But of course, there's all these broader dynamics at play. How does it accumulate? Um, what does its accumulation lead to? Uh, uh, you know, how is that related to hierarchy of power and all of these things? And uh, maybe th those are some things we could discuss, but it's a big topic. How would you define hierarchy? And is that a bad thing? I mean, I, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, hierarchy is natural. You know, nature is aristocratic. And I have my own rebuttals to these, but I'm curious what you, how you define this first and foremost, if this is an idea that we want to get into. There's a few conceptions of how you might want to define this word hierarchy, uh, even within the anarchist canon. Now, what you'll find is in a general sense, when anarchists say hierarchy, they mean hierarchy of power, right? They don't, they don't just mean any hierarchy in a general sense. Uh, I think this is where sometimes people might get a little confused. For example, you know, in physics, there might be a hierarchy of particles or something, right? This really isn't what the anarchist is objecting to. <laughs> They're not objecting to there being some order of primacy uh, in, logical, uh, in logic or ideas or anything. Um, what, they're, what they're really objecting to is uh, the concentration and alienation of power, which the metaphor we're using here is hierarchy, a th one thing, things uh, are ranked one above the other, right? And when we talk about hierarchy of power, we're essentially talking about people monopolizing power. Um, this kind of goes back to uh, this idea we discussed about capital being power. Uh, power largely relies on, on two things. That is to say, it has an aspect wherein it can compel people to do things, and it has an aspect wherein it uh, prevents people from doing things. You might say that uh, the way capital functions is it prevents people from, from doing things. That is to say, it allows access to the only the people that have it. And to everyone else, they are kept from access. And this sort of, you know, links us back in with uh, the roots of socialist theory, uh, the ownership of the means of production, the, the, the owner, you know, who owns the means of production being such an important thing, because they're allowed to gatekeep the, uh, the natural productive capacities of society. So that, that, this is a, a one coverage, you might say. The other coverage is uh, one such as uh, Bookchin where Bookchin makes the word hierarchy uh, essentially contain this concept of domination. To uh, Bookchin, hierarchy is a concept that like fundamentally involves domination and subjugation. So what he would say to these people who talk about nature being fundamentally or inherently aristocratic, as you said, is that the concept of hierarchy and the concept of domination did not exist until humanity. An animal has no concept of that it is, quote-unquote, being dominated because it doesn't have a concept of domination. It doesn't recognize an idea of hierarchy. It simply exists as it is. 
and and even the predator prey relationships that are taking place in the ecology is not really the relation hierarchical relations so much as it is uh, as bookchin says complementary relationships which is to say there is a sort of unity in the diversity of functions within the ecology there must be predator and prey not not simply because that there must be some domination relationship but instead because they fulfill roles within the ecology. This concept of domination is humanity imposing its concept upon nature. In, in thinking about the ecosystem and thinking about nature, and, and you know, nature is this infinite projection that humanity uh, maps its beliefs and its narratives onto. So we have this society, this culture where Everything is all about authority. Everything is all about one person subjugating the other. You do what you're told. You know, you, we respect authority. We worship authority in this country, especially. I mean, anybody above you, you know, whether they have a nightstick or whether they have the resources above you or whether they're your boss. I mean, we are taught from a very, very young age, you know, even in the home, even in the family, that, you know, parental relationships are, you know, ultimate. Our whole society is predicated on this sort of master-slave dynamic. And... And these, these impacted notions, you know, even in something like the sciences where there's like, oh, we trust experts, which we, we defer to the experts. We are at every turn uh, dissuaded from trusting our own intuitive sense, our own understanding. And it's because at this very deep level of the belief that moves our society and organizes it, that there are people who just participate and then there are people who decide. There are, you know the smart and the strong and the powerful, you know, the, the whole uh, survival of the fittest, which is not a, a term that Darwin coined. It was a perversion. I mean, and, and that sort of leads into that whole Malthusian strain and the, the, the sort of patriarchal, controlling, dominating view of our whole culture, which is that we need elites to rule us, which is not true in, na in the context of nature, which nature, even if there is an apex predator, it doesn't go around the woods making all the other animals pay tribute to it. And it doesn't wipe them out if they don't uh, obey to it, you know. And e even an animal that is, you know, literally devouring the corpses of other animals, killing them, taking life from them, it doesn't do it out of uh, enmity or anger or the sense of domination, like you said. It's doing it with an in inherent sense of balance. There's an order to it. There's an actual economy in nature. A wolf will not wipe out its whole food supply. So there's, there's a natural balance within nature that all of these creatures, even the, the creature at the, quote, bottom, the worm, is the, in a way the most important, the most important at maintaining the life cycle. Yeah. So you're kind of tapping into to a lot of what Bookchin talks about here. You know, for Bookchin, this is a, a large part about just uh, the concept of intentionality, which is to say um, – uh, consciousness is what allows us to develop these broader concepts, uh, these intentions for domination. And um, You briefly mentioned this concept of paying tribute, for example, um, because the nature, nature functions on necessity, right? It doesn't necessarily function on this broader um, projection of ideas that we function on. Uh, and, and this can be seen insofar, and, and it goes all the way back to Kropotkin talking about this in Mutual Aid, like animals that are predator and prey, we, we have this we have this conception of them where like the prey is just this utterly ruthless machine that if it's or rather the, the predator is this utterly ruthless machine and that every time it sees the prey, it, it seizes upon its, its dominant nature and must like hunt and kill. 
But the truth is, is that that's not how things actually function. To a large degree, the predator and the prey live in the same ecosystem. They coexist for a great deal of their existence. When the predator is full, the predator doesn't just keep hunting. It's not, it's not hunting for the sake of trying to, you know, tread the prey under, underneath its foot. Uh, it's literally because it has to eat, right? It's a very different uh, uh, dynamic than what we see in uh, human society. And Bookchin makes calls this separate this the separation between what is called first nature and second nature. It's not just to say that all of human society is second nature. Uh, he, he thinks there was something that was a more organic society that lay between first and second nature, uh, which would have been what we existed in for the majority of our history. But there was the rise of what is called second nature, and second nature is a society of domination, a society predicated around hierarchies of power. And uh, he notes that there have, have been hierarchies of power existing within uh, uh, what you might call organic society uh, for a very long time. Uh, we can see that there was, and you noted, uh, the domination that even starts within the household. Well, he notes that, the, that there was a, a much more subtle form of domination in, in gerontocracy, the rule of uh, people who are old, right? This sort of unthinking respect that was given to somebody because of their age. Now, that made a lot more sense way back in the day, right? You didn't have science. You didn't have all of these books holding all of this knowledge. What you had was uh, people around you who had lived in the world and had uh, accrued knowledge, and uh, they were the, the repositories of that knowledge. So it made a lot of sense to trust to them as people who just knew more, who had experienced more. The problem was is as this became intertwined as a, a matter of domination, which is to say, once the elder was no longer just a respected source of knowledge, um, an expert by their age because they've experienced more, but instead a de facto source of power. That is to say, their age itself became a source of power. And uh, in doing so, it, it helped create some of the earliest hierarchies of power, which later um, grew into things like patriarchy, which grew into things like the domination of, of the shamanic class over, over the normal, the, the normal non-shamanic people of society. Um, these were very early hierarchies of power that had not yet catalyzed into the form of the state and the economy and all of those things. But, um, yeah, they, they started with this rise of second nature. They start with the rise of human intentionality and the ability to map out ideas and to conceptualize domination for the first time. So these are kind of like the two broad interpretations of how you might talk about hierarchy. And then, of course, you've got like more fascistic uh, uh, conceptions of hierarchy, which is that hierarchy roots to the, to the lowest foundations of society. Uh, if you're like a Jordan Peterson type, for example, this is, a, this is a much more appealing perspective where you think literally hierarchies are built into every single thing. They are a deep eternal truth of existence. Um, this ends up uh, building out a structure for fascism if you, if you carry it to its, to its uh, final extent. And that's why I prefer to specify uh, as uh, hierarchies of power so that we don't get all mixed up with concepts of hierarchy or primacy in, in like, you know, logic or physics or whatever. I'm, I'm concerned with hierarchies of power. 
I mean, it looks like you can trace a lot of, you know, these these hierarchies that exist today within the structure of capitalism and whatnot, uh, you know, back a long time, essentially, back before capitalism existed, back, you know, through other ages. And, and uh, you can probably also see patterns of how people took power, uh, you know, uh, through certain uh, mechanisms, whether it be like, uh, you know, maybe maybe the state or armies or uh, religious doctrine or um you know various other mechanisms and things like that i'm sure there's a lot of things that kind of play out over over and over again through certain different time periods and different places but they also display a lot of the same characteristics and traits and you can kind of see oh this is this is kind of how a lot of the people took power essentially you know they they got hold of uh, certain things uh, certain mechanisms a lot of the time and, and and essentially grew from there and um but you know now now in this day and age of course we've taken it to a whole nother you know level with with global integration and capitalism and the monetary and banking system and and everything else it's just uh you know a monster that's almost out of control now and it's taken on a life of its own essentially but uh, but i think it's really interesting to look back and kind of understand the basis of a lot of the stuff too i'm kind of curious to to your background in history a little bit if you could kind of tell us a little bit more about yourself and what how you got into anarchism essentially and why you view it as a solution like when I was a kid too, I viewed anarchy as, you know, like rioting in the streets and, you know, just, you know, every man for himself kind of thing. But obviously it's not that, you know, when we, when we talk about anarch, anarchism, uh, there's a lot of little nuances and things like that in there that a lot of people might not really uh, understand. I was wondering if we can kind of dive into some of that a little bit too. Like exactly what is anarchism? Why do you like it? Why do you view it as a solution and things like that? My background as far as politics goes is back in 2011, I, I got involved in Occupy Wall Street. Um, previous to that, I would say I was mostly just a liberal, right? I, uh, I was kind of like a democratic voter. I was like anti-Iraq war. The problems that were obvious were obvious to me, right? And I, I could see from a very young age that something about society was built wrong, okay? Like I could tell something was, was fundamentally wrong about its foundations, uh, but I couldn't really articulate them very well until I got into Occupy, and during Occupy, my political education really began. I learned, I learned about a lot of different perspectives there. Uh, I first started reading, for example, Chomsky and Zen during these days. Um, I was uh, telling you earlier before the show that I also uh, encountered uh, the very early like zeitgeist movement and the Venus Project and stuff, which were like precursors to this um, way back then, right? Uh, and that stuff, that stuff was all very informative to me, but I think it wasn't until I actually started a mixture of two things, both engaging and reading anarchist theory, but also repeatedly watching it play out as a fact of reality in front of me. Every time I would learn more about what anarchism would say, and then I would continue organizing, and I would continue seeing the results of organizing, and I would continue studying history and seeing history play out in front of me, uh, it just became more and more obvious that anarchism was the only framework in hand that was, un was giving me an understanding of these events, uh, allowing me to predict and operate within them. Uh, every other ideology I was looking into was breaking down. It was having it was having some serious problems. It was not aging well into the modern era, uh, whereas anarchism, as I read about it, just seemed incredibly robust. Um, it just seemed as if it was built as this this incredibly 
you know, um, consistent vehicle for understanding power relations in every conceivable kind of society. And uh, I found that very valuable. I feel like uh, every person that I've ever met who has dabbled in this dark art of anarchy or or whatever has their own definition. And I think Chomsky said something like, Democ it's democracy taken seriously. Uh, I think that's a very good one. I, I think in, in our uh, introductory talk, I, I kind of articulated what that is for me is it's it's more of a discipline than anything. It's something that I equate to like Zen or like the Wu Wei. It's like it's it's the way of being effortlessly. It's less an ideology than it is like a crowbar and a tool set to dismantle ideology from clinging to you. It's this discipline that allows you to sort of be always be limber and always be examining yourself and the ways that power affects you. The ways that these structures of power are inherent. They are, in a way, baked into either our cultural conditioning or, in some deeper ways, into our, our, our neurological makeup. That these alienating, abstract forms of power and structure that we have created or adapted to out of you know conditions of extreme scarcity, or whatever it was that you know shifted us from first to second nature, as, as Bookchin said, that destabilizing incident that made us off kilter, that made us uh, off balance, that made these these dehumanizing and destabilizing uh, weights of power and domination and assertion and that all come from insecurity uh, form in us. So I, I think it's it's all about like like being limber, being being loose and like water and constantly examining yourself. It's a lens more than anything. It's a lens to study human relationships, human social dynamics, and to make sure that we understand that, that power affects us all like a drug. It affects us all in a malignant way, and we can't resist it. No one is just inherently strong enough that they can resist power structures like that. I mean, I think about, think about somebody like, like a, a rock star or something, you know, some 16-year-old, 18-year-old kid who is suddenly jettisoned into world fame and has all this sexual power and can have any woman they want and have, have the money to do all these things. And they, they get this enormous ego about them. It's like why so many celebrities have these giant egos, or it's like why so many politicians just naturally become corrupt. You know, you have somebody like Obama, who, you know, was always pretty much conservative. And <laughs> anyway, I mean, but he, he, he made us believe anyway. But, you know, you have people like AOC or Bernie Sanders, who I think are decent people, good people, but they are in this structure. This structure that is inherently destructive, that is inherently uh, alienating, and it, it, it separates people. It separates us. It separates us from us. So to be an anarchist or to practice anarchy, I mean, I, I, I really uh, evade these ideological distinctions and identifications. Oh, I am an anarchist, or I am this, or I am a good person, or I am a, you know, even a filmmaker or something like that. I'm not a filmmaker. I'm a person that makes films. You know, I'm a a, a person that is trying to understand the ways that power affects me so anarchy or anarchism or these these writers and thinkers like you daniel that are thinking in this vein that are using these lenses i think are the most co comprehensive they are the most comprehensive at understanding power and at uh keeping us helping us just be ourselves helping us maintain our actual social nature in this alienating mechanized uh, dynamic yeah so I want to I want to try just as a, a foundation here, just to kind of define what how I see anarchism. And it's helpful that I'm literally writing a script for the next video, which is a primer on anarchism. 
uh, anarchism is both a method and a lens of analysis. And it, these two are embodied together in a real movement, which works to achieve the goals of anarchism. And I would say the three primary principles that all anarchists share together are that the means cannot be disentangled from the ends, that hierarchical power is the root of subjugation, and that power structures seek to perpetuate themselves. Now, these three together essentially mean that we, are, we cannot, if we want to dismantle hierarchical power, which we should want to because hierarchical power is the root of subjugation and, and the, the means are fundamentally intertwined with the ends, then we, as the people wanting to dismantle subjugation, should not be using hierarchical power because hierarchical power is, as you say, corrupting when we use it as well. The problem, the problem really is that and, and this is a big part of why anarchism is so persuasive to me, is that this is a systems conflict. And anarchism is very systems analytic, right? So it's looking at the way that systems are structured and what the natural outcomes of systems being structured that way is. So now what you note is that power is corrupting. This is one issue, this is one uh, problem with it, and this goes really far back. It's corrupting in a variety of ways, right? And science has only further confirmed this fact, as well as all of our instincts and observations. I mean, what, we just see it as a fact of our eyes as we live through life, right? But it's even more than that. Even if you did, there's two, two bigger problems at hand even, okay? Even if you got the perfect guy in the spot, the guy is gonna die eventually. And then you're not going to have the perfect guy in the spot anymore. Now you built this very hierarchical power structure depending on the guy and the guy's gone. So what are you going to do now? Now you're going to have to fill it with not the guy. And you built a structure that needs the guy. Otherwise, everything falls apart. And guess what? Everything does fall apart. That's exactly what happens. You've just built a system bound to fail because humans die. So it doesn't matter whether you've got the good guy. Once the good guy is gone, the system is going to fall to pieces. So that's, hang on, that's, girlfriend. What if it's what if it's like a really badass, cool, uh, intersectional queer girl boss, though? True. Yeah. There you go. All you just build the hierarchical power solved. structure, but then <laughs> then if the, oh yeah, I mean, that's not more a, female CEOs. That'll fix the problem. <laughs> what we need is more trans drone pilots. I think. But like, we're, we're, we're quick to interject there. I think Amanda had a had a point there. We gotta. Gotta gotta help Amanda get in the ring here from time to time. She's too polite for her own good. She's uh, the most she's the, oh, she's the politest bomb, just bomb flinging to anarchist. The, the, I've ever the fact that you're so it's that southern etiquette. I can't get rid of it no matter how hard I try. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I don't want to cut off Daniel. But he's doing such a wonderful job of articulating the fact that um, all of these systems are, of course, uh, like houses of cards, and more so than ever, especially in my lifetime, they seem to be teetering on the edge of collapse. I mean, for goodness sakes, it looks like society is literally collapsing around us. We've got power cables in Texas melting, people dying when it's too cold. We've got uh, condo buildings collapsing in on themselves. You know, like uh, the infrastructure that was built on capital uh, is crumbling right before us. And yet we're still just having these 
these discussions and I just get really frustrated because I'm very impatient. Redundancy is not my friend. How many more years and how many more ways can we say what's going on? Here's the evidence. Let's do something about it. But on that note, I, I do have a burning question and you being such a well-read, well-rounded uh, anarchist, Daniel, um, I kind of want to point my perspective of anarchy towards you and get your feedback on it. Uh, basically, someone asked me not long ago, what do you think anarchy is? What is it to you? Why do you believe in it, so to speak? Why do you, um, you know, endorse it? A post-scarcity anarchy vision is what I most closely relate to. And it's because in that world, per se, what I see is a society that's relevantly educated in how to live, where our autonomy and our uh, sovereignty is, is, is ours. It doesn't belong to the higher the artificial hierarchy who have conditioned us to live according to their arbitrary constructs. So feedback on that, like if we were to see ourselves transitioning into a, a world, a, a time in our evolution where anarchy is more so um, the, the premise of, of, our, of our living, uh, what would be that first step? Would it be relevant education? How important is that? And how do you see that being um, a big part of why we're unable to achieve the things that were possible of today? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd like to say I, I actually agree to a large uh, degree with uh, why you think that anarchy is preferable. That is to say, it's a society wherein the people are actually able to um, autonomously and uh, under conditions of solidarity come together and decide how their society will be structured themselves, not uh, by uh, arbitrary hierarchical power structures. But um, insofar as the transition from here to there, that is another matter entirely. It's a very difficult question to answer, and many answers have been offered. Um, I have my own personal answers on how you would move there, and I don't think that it's going to only be reliant upon this aspect of mass education. I think that is an important aspect. Obviously, people are not going to struggle if they don't know what the, the struggle at hand is. And I don't believe in this idea that people are just going to, you know, oh, as misery comes about, just automatically figure out the right means and boom, put it to work and get right there and just have their, you know, utopian revolution. I don't, I don't believe that's how it works. There is an aspect of, of education that has to take place. There's also going to be an aspect, just simply the conditions of society are going to dictate that there's going to be uprisings. And as things fall apart, it's going to inspire people to try to find answers. And anarchists have to be there in, in already formed as a, as a group, as organizations, in order to to, you know, uh, act as a catalyst, essentially, to give people the education that, that, that they will need in order to free themselves, right? Then this, of course, then necessitates we have to build the power that we are looking for, not a horizontal power or a, not, a, not a hierarchical power, but a horizontal power, a power that we hold among ourselves. That is to say, all of the power that has been alienated from us, we are taking it back. We are trying to put it back into the hands of the people, and we are trying to distribute it in such a way that we call forth our power as a people. That's the goal at hand. That's, that's, that's building dual power, as you might say. So I believe this is all part of the picture, right? All right. of that has to be involved in the picture. And that's where most people draw the line. They're like, oh, yes, I understand that we should be able to take our power back. Uh, you know, even people who claim to be, uh, you know, 
uh, Republicans or Democrats or whatever you know political party or ism that they want to associate yourself their self with. Um, most people get to that point of the the definition of anarchism and the the, the transition, and they go, "Oh well, I don't want to see that happen. That sounds violent. That sounds uh, you know that's intimidating. That sounds uh, you know like like a revolution, like a bloody a fiery revolution will have to take place before we can do that." And then you have that Hollywood definition it takes over and people just shut down and they don't, they don't want to hear anything else you have to say basically uh what do you say to that the fact that hollywood has conditioned society to believe that people not being governed will result in uh situations that are undesirable when in fact we live in a rea- reality now that's extremely undesirable and unsustainable and irrational and all that jazz. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say um, answering answering this question is involved in sort of the uh, part of the discussion we had almost brought up there, which is that this process is not only one of people being coerced by by power through force, through threat of violence. A large part of it is this hierarchical realism that was discussed earlier, which is to say there is a complex of justifying philosophies for this society that that are uh, in operation in order to keep people under control, but also more than that, to think to uh, assume that they're them being under control, them being dominated, is a good. Not not that it's not not that it just is, but that it should be. I think the most profound and simple way of of uh, expressing that, and and this is a term that uh, when we discussed, we talked on the phone. First of all, I, I just hit Daniel up on Twitter, and um, he was like, "Totally, let's do it." Let's talk. And we just talked and just <laughs> dove right into it. It was just like, there wasn't like, hey, how you doing? It was just like, so anyway, the nature of hierarchy is thus. You know, it was like this this idea that I have been distilling for years now, and it's I conceive it as the cycle, and it's the cycle of violence, the cycle of abuse. I think the simplest way is to bring it back to the family of, you know, my parents hit me, and I turned out just fine. So I'm going to hit my kids. And it, it normalizes it. And it, it's a cycle of what is ultimately violence and it's a culture that is coercive toward violence that makes violence a net good that makes people think that this is what things should be that we are as a people oppressed abused and i think what will probably you know peter off into this territory eventually that even those people who have power who have absolute power do not have power and control over their own actions and are in fact hurting themselves they're poisoning their own drinking water they're destroying their own earth but it's like this cycle perpetuates itself and people are abused and they don't they're not aware of the deeper structure of that abuse they're not aware of the psychoanalytic uh, component of that of the ways that they incubate that that they identify with the suffering they identify with the the abuse without even realizing it and unknowingly and unconsciously seek to carry that cycle on it's metaphysics you know it's 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 belief is stacked like uh, i think about it as like little little pebbles being put onto two sides of a scale. And it's like to talk about intentionality or the intentionality of our existence, that we are putting our intentions into a violent cycle. And it's by saying and constantly reaffirming that, oh, life exists on violence. You know, death and destruction and abuse and uh, power are inevitable and inherent, and they are a part of who we are. They are who we are. When in reality, we can break these cycles. We can cleanse them. We can reclaim our 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 holistic and healthy sense of who we are by coming together, by collectively 
healing that trauma and and changing that intention, changing that belief to something that is real, something that is true, to a sense of who we are as we don't need to abuse each other. We don't need to beat and 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 coerce and cajole and violate and dominate each other for things to get done. Because we're doing that now, things are not getting done in any real or serious way. And we have all these entrenched power structures that in, incentivize at every turn to bring it back into the sort of monetary system. They literally give people gold stars when they do fucked up shit, when they abuse each other, when they uh, engage in corruption and 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 um, cross the lines, when they make other people subservient to them. They are they are reinforced in that. So of course we we tend to think and assume on a deep level. Oh yeah, we got to wait for the good people. We got to wait for the heroes to come. We got to wait for you know so and so to come and save the day. And that's that's a cultural uh, delusion. Daniel, you were talking about uh, horizontal power structures, right? Like having to build these horizontal power structures. I was curious, can you explain a little bit more about exactly uh, what that would look like? Like what a horizontal power structure would look like, essentially? Um, Are there any examples you could give us, too, that maybe uh, exist, um, you know, today that we could, you know, look at or something like that or you know just use as an example um and i was curious too are are you familiar with cooperatives also and do you think cooperatives would uh you know kind of fall more under that category of a horizontal power structure yeah so a horizontal power structure um is one where the power is held by default equally by all the participants in the structure Um, Now, they may delegate some amount of that power, uh, but that has to be done entirely upon their consent. So I guess I'll start by saying, in a general sense, horizontal power structures function on a method called consensus, which is to say where you're actually trying to get complete agreement from the group. Uh, it's a, you might, some people say it's a democratic structure. Some people don't like calling it a democratic structure. Uh, for me, I don't really care what you call it. I'm more concerned with the process. Um, and the process is trying to get unanimous agreement. That's one, one aspect of it. Um, sorry for interrupting to it. I've heard from some people too, that that just tends to be almost impossible or something really difficult to achieve too. Just like unanimous consensus depends on your group. Do you, do you hear that? do you hear that objection a lot of the time? It depends oh, Peter, on your group. Uh, Peter Joseph was talking about mm-hmm. kind of a blanket democracy the other day in this uh, lecture. I was, and he was saying like, you know, democracy can mean, you know, 50 white people lynching one black person. You know, that, that is a, a form of consensus. That is a mm-hmm. form of democracy where a group of people who are not educated on how to live together are able to exact these hierarchies. Like they can choose a hierarchy. Like it's interesting. I've I've been doing a lot of work in Appalachia and um, working with a lot of rural people, and I just kind of f- hang out with and engage with rural people more in, in general than in rural urban people. And I have a real love of of the of those people, of those groups of people, especially the ones who have who really just seek to get as far away from Babylon, from the cities as they can, and and from those authoritarian power structures that. They don't like the government and they don't like the corporations. They call themselves conservatives or they call themselves libertarians because they just don't really have the understanding to know like really what they are and what they are striving for is anarchy, is uh, you know autonomy and self-governance. But it, 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 that is an interesting thing. I, I, I experience that sort of qualm a lot that it's like if people are uh, autonomous, you know, without some sort of uh, – central guiding principles specifically of like sustainability or of like racial equity 
or things like that, 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 uh, what is to keep people. And, and I'm sorry if I derailed uh, your point, Matt, I'm, my brain is unspooling itself with questions right now. <laughs> what is to keep us from, what is to keep horizontal power structures that are organized along, you know, false solidarity, like racism, or that want to say all the coal miners in Appalachia wanted to say, okay, fuck y'all. We're going to start, um, we're going to start mining coal again. <laughs> we're we're going to go, you know, burn fossil fuels more. We're going to do all of this stuff that is inherently destructive. What is to keep uh, that general principle of uh, interconnectedness, interdependence, and sustainability intact? I mean, the primary answer to the question is confederation. Um, that is to say, everybody is part of these um, uh, confederated council structures. So using the example of 50 white people lynching one black person, um, in a society that is actually organized anarchistically, that black person is in the same council with those 50 people. And um, insofar as that the actual mechanics of democratic decision are what, what is forming the way that, that, that things move forward, that black person just says, no, I don't want to be lynched. I mean, they're part of the council as well, right? Like you're, it's consensus. You have to have complete unanimity. So insofar as the council is what's motivating that decision, uh, a, a council of that area would not be able to do that because the black person would simply say, no, I don't want to be lynched in the council. Ta-da, no consensus. The council doesn't make that decision. However, if you're just talking about like the actual, you know, people carrying out that decision, well, of course, yeah, that could be a problem. But I might add, it's a problem in our society and has already been a problem in a society that that supposes that it has answers. Um, uh, and I could get off into more complicated answers to that question. Um, but I also want to get at your, your other comment um, about many people uh, professing these fundamental values that appear to be the values of anarchism. I think that's true to a significant degree. Um, I think that a large number of people, this their natural desire is a sort of anarchistic society. They want to be freed freedom. from the coercion. Yeah, freedom. They want to be co freed from the, the coercion of, of hierarchical power. Of course they do, because it is it, it does make us miserable. It does contort our, our lives into something that is really more useful for power than it is for us, right? So, of course, they want to escape it. The problem is, of course, these other things that we just discussed, right? The false solidarity of racism and white supremacy being this very, very powerful factor, especially in the United States, um, but really all over the globe uh, because of the, the history of imperialism and neocolonialism and all of that. Um, but these are problems that have to be dealt with. Anarchism does indeed have to countervail these broader hierarchical notions of society, these ideas that I call justifying philosophies, which is to say they are justifications for hierarchical power. And they go really far back. You know, gerontocracy was one of the first justifying philosophies. And then you got, you know, the, the rise of the shamanic class being a justifying philosophy and so on and so on. You've got lots well, I mean, of these We totally have a gerontocracy today. I mean, it's just crazy to think that somebody like Nancy Pelosi has had essentially the same same position of power since I was born. She's been, yeah. she's had that power my entire life. I mean, she can barely string sentences together. I mean, it's like Biden's brain is melting in real time, but he is so entrenched in the power structure. And it's not even at the point where he's like, oh, he knows how to game the system. He knows, he knows how everything works. He knows where the toilet is in the White House. It's like, no, he's just like paid his dues into this power structure that people feed emptily into these puppet-like forms of power that power itself is a puppet for itself. It's like you were talking about this in one of your videos. I, I was listening, I was kind of brushing up before this uh, episode that people become living capital. 
They become capital. They become receptive. You know, Jeff Bezos is Amazon. You know, uh, these billionaires are the embodiment of capital. They are they are personal personalized. They are you know they are corporate personhood gone mad, where they actually there actually is a corporeal form attached to it in this twisted you know false theology. Oh, I just want to point out that you and Daniel have uh, so so clearly expounded on the fact that democracy and any other closely related ocracy is going to be subjective and therefore counterproductive to the greater good because as long as people are allowed to participate based on their belief systems, their opinions, uh, rather than relevant education, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, democracy is just, quote unquote, democracy is just going to perpetuate all the things that we're trying to abolish and dismantle. Here, here, I would just note that obviously we would have to define what we mean by de- democracy, right? <laughs> if we mean if we mean the form of the liberal republic, then yeah, the the republic doesn't work. Um, the 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 republic is based around the alienation of power, um, based around the fact that I, I vote for my rulers. Um, insofar well, as forms of direct democracy go, go that that definitely has a much higher buy-in uh, among among anarchists. They don't like to call it direct democracy, but they do the whole uh, uh, voting towards consensus thing. Uh, but for me, uh, uh, or, or I want to I want to also finish the, the a little bit of the question that was being asked earlier, which is to say, where do we see the, the relevant examples, right? Where, where is this at play? Where are these horizontal power structures? Is a cooperative one of those? And, and so on, right? Um, I would say cooperatives are part of building uh, this dual power structure, which is to say, I don't think that by themselves they're enough. Um, a cooperative built simply by itself is probably going to capitulate to market pressures, um, and that is to say that the people within it, yes, indeed, they will probably make better decisions than the capitalists, but insofar as that they are a firm functioning within within the market by themselves, they're very likely to slowly give in to the pressures of the market. But the solution is not to build cooperatives all by themselves. The solution is to build broader uh, council structures that hold th- everything together, essentially. Now, I advocate we build these at the level of neighborhoods, uh, city blocks, uh, apartment buildings, uh, and these these structures are given direct control of everything that is being created by the people within those within those councils. And then those councils then have a democratic control over everything that is being created, and you end up with some sort of very indirect social ownership of the means of production. Now that that's not complete, of course. That's going to have its own problems, as we've discussed, like people's ideologies, people having you know white supremacist mentalities, or or all kinds of different bigotries can can all play in. But uh, I'll, I'll just finish up real quick here. Okay, so there's all kinds of different dual power structures you can build. They're all important in their own different ways. They're all going to be necessary in different conditions. And I've written uh, a video called Constructing the Revolution, which goes much more explicitly into the kinds of power structures, how they should be built together, how you should strategically see the whole project at hand. Um, insofar as practical examples, I would say one of the best practical examples in the modern day is the Zapatistas, but you can see a lot of other examples. Um, like Rojava is a much more horizontal society. I would say that it has some amount of hierarchy of power, but that it is heavily uh, curtailed. You've got lots of anarchist movements uh, that are all over the planet functioning on consensus models. 
you've got historically a huge number of examples, uh, especially if you can go all the way back into the days of like uh, an, an indigenous societies where you have uh, essentially, a, um, for the most part, I mean, there's there's significant variation that takes place, of course. You've got mostly horizontal power structures. It's not to say that that was the only kind, because that would be a lie. Like there was totally all kinds of different variation within indigenous societies. But when you go really far back, you see a lot more horizontal power structures and you see them spanning over very large uh, areas as well. For example, the Iroquois Confederacy in uh, the, the United States before colonialism. So there's lots of examples to be made, uh, but I also can't go into all of them. We just don't have time, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that the Iroquois Confederacy is something every single person, especially every American, needs to read about. It's uh, the basis for, you know, America, the form of corrupted, you know, democracy or republic or whatever we have here is like the Kmart version of the Iroquois Confederacy, which was a nation of nations, you know, that came together peacefully. Uh, you know, there's an amazing story of their hero, Hiawatha, who learned to speak all the languages of all the different uh, nations who warred for many thousands of years. You know, they were in this degenerative period where they were warring amongst themselves and they were able to make peace one to one, and then they formed a confederacy of of states that all basically communicated and worked together, and that was a direct uh, inspiration for the Constitution and for you know the United States of America. I mean, it was it was direct inspiration for like the early socialists and anarchists, which is something that does not get spoken about very often. Like yeah, Marx, Marx, Marx was studying was the Iroquois Confederacy. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people who get who sort of spiral off into Marxism specifically and label themselves Marxists, you know, really they take this this silly assumption that like, you know, the Soviet Union was the birth of uh, of you know collectivism, which is like just totally wrong you know it, it, it goes back much further there's there's forms of it with much greater primacy and even much greater success that lasted longer that were more peaceful that didn't have these you know huge uh, asymmetrical power structures and, and you know industrial impacts and you know debatable imperialistic uh, tendencies and so on and so on I hope not to sound like a broken record because I do bring this up often, but I think this is a great uh, point to interject the fact that Marshall Saline's original affluent society um, is a great piece to uh, read and apply to uh, the things that uh, you, Daniel, and Marla are discussing there. Because if you look at his data and, and, and his recordings, you see how the horizontal power structures play out in tribes and uh, what we would call um, pagan societies and unindustrialized societies and what have you and see how successful it is for them without the artificial hierarchy in place, uh, their health, their their daily quality of life, uh, the fact that they are still thriving uh, to say they, that is, you know, the, the tribes that are thankfully still untouched mostly by the industrial society, uh, whereas ours is crumbling as, as we mentioned earlier. So I have a question for Matt and Amanda, and that's um, sort of about uh, the conceptions of democracy and of, of rule of, of sort of not law necessarily, but uh, the overall design or designers of society in proposed models for resource-based economy like the Venus Project. Like Jacques Fresco has some really interesting things to say about uh, democracy, and I'm, I'm still very much a student of these systems and lenses of viewing our uh, 
revolutionary potential or our potential uh, new model for society. So I, I, I'd like to sort of shift shift gears into that and and sort of look at look at uh, the Venus Project and other models like that. You know, resource based economies. You know, which I think are very much in run tandem to you know the I'm sure any any just about any anarchist you speak to honestly any communist you speak to uh, any anybody who is broadly pushing for a better society i think is striving towards you know the resource based economy where everybody's needs are met where you know the means and technological prowesses that we have are utilized for the good of all to meet our potential and to create something that is new i think what what interests me about that terminology is that it is clear of all this ideological baggage, that it is a, a sort of a new conceptuality that's based more in uh, sort of technical logic than it is in the, the power structures and the ideological frameworks of the past. So um, let's let's get futurist. Let's let's get what's the word y'all like protopian. Yes, protopian. Well, it's important to point out a couple of nuances when you're trying to relate resource-based economy and especially the Venus Project's aims and proposals to something like anarchy or communism or anything else like that. Um, I still shudder when I put the Venus Project and anarchy in the same sentence just because, you know, being a volunteer for the Venus Project, I don't want to smear their campaign. Um, And unfortunately, as we all know, the Hollywood version of anarchy is what people are most familiar with. And so that is why I try not to put them in the same sentence. But uh, truth be told, they are very similar in aims and proposals. As we know, um, the post-scarcity anarchist view uh, would be something along the lines of a society in which there is abundance everyone's needs are net are met but i think it's based uh, and i'm not a scholar on this subject or on this uh, faction of anarchy at all but i think it's mostly based on um the the belief or the the, the striving for just the, the fact that power structures wouldn't have control over resources anymore and so therefore inherently there would be enough to go around if they wouldn't there wasn't there wouldn't be like engineered scarcity in our way there wouldn't be paywalls in our way basically whereas the difference uh, with the Venus Project and the resource-based economy is that not only will there not be power structures inhibiting evolution and innovation and collaboration, but there would, uh, well, subsequently because of that, there would be the, uh, the, the ability to facilitate all of those things truly and organically. Uh, and so not only would resources be freed up, but we would, we ourselves, the biggest resource humans would be freed up to make all of these things happen, to implement what we already have the capability of implementing, you know, to put technology to work for us and for the greater good, instead of against us, marketing us, instead of us putting it to work, basically like grasping at straws. (laughs) Well, Bookchin wrote a a great essay called Post-Scarcity Anarchy in like 1960 or something, 1970. I mean, and he's talking about you know, utilizing automation, and and he said, I don't want to. I'm I'm also sounding like a broken record here. You know, he he was talking about how, you know, for the first time in in history, you know, scarcity has to be manufactured. It's not something that has to be endured. Like Karl Marx could not really conceive of of uh, of abundance. He couldn't conceive of of a transcending scarcity. And I think a lot of um, a lot of offshoots of Marxism don't really take that into account and I think are are just v- very mired in a lot of antiquated thought not nothing against Marx I mean Marx is, is brilliant and he's a great lens to understand capitalism it's amazing 
I mean, he he in in a lot of ways created it by by not created capitalism, but he gave us the language to understand it, which I I don't know that people before him really even understood what they were doing as much. It was just doing business, you know, following the money, chasing power, and 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 reactively in this cyclical way of, you know, leveraging power in the ways that power was leveraged against them. And, you know, if I don't do this, somebody else is going to do it to create the system that we have today, unconsciously, automatically. You know, you talk about automation. I mean, I think that the creation of, of this form of techno-feudalistic capitalism is in its own way an automated society. We don't run it. It's the machine. It's like how um, the Grapes of Wrath, there's that amazing scene where their farm is being repossessed and they're like, what if we shoot you? And he's he's got the bull he's on the the worker on the bulldozer. He's, they're like, what if we what if we shoot you? You know, and he's like, well, they'll send somebody else. And they're like, what if we shoot him? They're like, all right, well, they're gonna bring in the manager. And what if we shoot the manager? And it's like, well, the manager uh, has a manager, and you know, he's owned by the bank. And oh, what if we kill the owner of the bank? It's like, well, the bank is owned by the, it's. It, he, he says it's not me, it's the machine. It the machine is doing this, and we made the machine, and the machine is more powerful than we are. It it runs us. It's automatic. Like we are automatically lurching toward this thing. A lot of people talk about like, oh, COVID is this obvious conspiracy because they're using it to, uh, you know, grab resources and make it this huge upward wealth transfer and eviscerate the middle class and uh, and all of this. It's like, well, yeah, hell yeah, they're doing that. They were doing that anyway because they're on autopilot. Because literally, no matter what happens under this system, this structure of power that is, you know. Uh, manifest in the monetary system and the edifices of power that exist in our world, which are driven by and substantiated by money, it's going to do that. It's going to leverage advantage in those ways. I was curious, before you came on uh, earlier, we were briefly talking a little bit about, um, you know, the concept of capital as power and, uh, you know, kind of how it differed from, uh, you know, the labor, the labor uh, theory essentially. Um, I kind of wanted to circle back around to that and talk a little bit about that, but it was, it's kind of brings up an interesting point too. And it kind of makes sense with, with essentially so much being automated now, you know, because the, the, the automation is capital essentially. And I like to come back to a Stephen Hawking quote that I use a lot. You know, it's, we could, we could have a dystopia or a utopia, just depending on who owns the the capital essentially on who owns the automation, the machines, right? On uh, if, if, if they're owned collectively, you know, and, and they benefit everyone collectively, then we could have a, you know, beautifully functioning society. But if, you know, they're not owned collectively, they're owned privately, and everybody is a slave to the system, then all of a sudden we have a dystopia instead. And, and, and I just kind of also wanted to go to the point too. I think a lot of, a lot of the functionality of any type of future, say moneyless society or anarchist society will be like algorithmic, you know, it'll, it'll essentially be in the computer programming a lot of the time for, for the functionality of, of what gets produced and when, and what goods are provided to people just based on a needs slash sustainability basis. You know, there'll be, there'll be computer programs that help us figure out uh, where to allocate the resources where they're needed, uh, you know, uh, how much of things are going to be produced and when, and and essentially that'll be a large part of kind of the the democracy of uh, a moneyless society. I think in the future you'll get these mechanisms in place to where they'll be able to be decided, uh, you know, kind of collectively, and then essentially those these automated mechanisms will will be able to you know create a lot of the production without a human intervention. You know, that's kind of where it goes e eventually. I, I think anyway. 
I probably just covered way too much it's, there. It's hard. Little... It's hard to answer that, right? <laughs> it's hard to answer that. I know, right? Yeah. So, so anyway, back back to the whole capital is power thing. I think that's what we were kind of circling back around to. Vigilant. I know both Amanda and Marlo have have uh, you know things to add to that too. But go ahead, give me some, give me your thoughts. So Take it, it as an it, unstated premise that I have something to add to that, no matter what it is. <laughs> we know you do, Zach. Yeah. So, uh, capital is power. Definitely. Remember how I said there's kind of always there's like these two different ways of looking at power. There's one where it, it uh, forces people to do things. And there's another where it, for, it, it prevents people from doing things, right? Power, power can do both of those. Um, and Bickler and Nitzen, they're definitely looking more at the power as preventing people from doing things. Uh, in the conception of Bickler and Nitzen, uh, the natural impulse of humanity is to create and produce. Uh, this is something they actually hold in common with Marx. Uh, I don't know if they, if, they, if they know that, but they seem to be pretty well read on Marx, so I assume they might. But they, they believe in the fundamental desire of humanity to, to uh, function as a creative being. Uh, what it, what human, humans really want is uh, the coordination of their, their creative desires with uh, some, means, uh, some means of them coming into reality right? But all of that is being gatekept from them by the ownership of the means of production, if we're looking at it through Marxist lens, and really more broadly access to power if we're looking at it through Bickler and Nitzen. So the main place that they differ from Marx is just that this, this number, like uh, uh, money and, and its accumulation in capital, is really just a raw measurement of power and leverage uh it, it is it, it whereas for marx it is um fundamentally a distortion of the labor of the masses right so uh, uh marx would say that all of the value that is being created in capital is is essentially leveraged labor Okay, it's like, you know, the laborers do the work, they make the whole economy run, uh, the capitalist, you know, distorts the values in order to extract more than the thing is worth, that's profit, you know, and so on and so on. This is kind of, we're, most of us are pretty familiar with this labor theory of value, even if we don't know it by that name, right? The workers produce everything, the capitalists exploit their labor, that's how they accumulate capital. It's a powerful thing about about Marx is that anybody who's ever worked a job before can can get it pretty quickly. I was working on a farm pretty recently, and uh, I was basically explaining this to everybody. We, it was like a wolf kind of very feudal arrangement. Everybody was definitely being exploited. They were making tons of money because of COVID. They were making huge. They had all these orders for far, like uh, deliveries and boxes and things like that. Everybody thought the world was ending. They were making tons of money. They didn't pay any of their workers. The, the one worker they paid or the two workers they paid were paid less than like, they were paid like $3 an hour or something. And I was just telling everybody there, like they need you way more than you need them. If you stop working, their whole shit collapses. If they stop working, what, you know, everybody like gets it. already it. is. <laughs> Hashtag general strike. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, <laughs> I, I, that, that is a, that is a, that is a, I mean, any moment to express the need for general strikes and for labor as one, one of our greatest connective points who, hates the system more than the worker, you know, or who should hate the system, even though we have so many people who lick the boots of their masters and, you know, the, you know, these temporarily inconvenienced millionaires who want to be their boss, who want to be Jeff Bezos and will lick his boots because they think that they are going to be there someday, even though it's never, ever, ever going to happen. And they're closer to being homeless than they are to being a, a you know, billionaire who's 
the, the government pays $10 billion to go to space on his own, you know, whim with his fucking brother. Like they're going out bird dog and chicks or something. It's just hideous. But yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the greatest uh, points of, of leveraging and organizing and, and labor is power truly. And I think, uh, another point to kind of tack onto that of why anarchism I think is, is, a uh, something that is, has legs, you know, has the power to organize everybody is that everybody wants to be free. And I think when you really, when, when we can reaffirm to people, all people, that they have the intelligence, that they have the capacity to rule themselves, to not rule, to live themselves, to, to function together in a symbiotic way, to, you know, carve their own destiny and by their own intentions, create their society, create the world that we live in. I think that that is one of the most empowering things in the world, much more empowering than saying, okay, this very small group of people, we're the revolutionary vanguard and you're going to put your faith in us and then we're going to secede, we're going to seize power and then, oh, I swear, we'll, we'll give power to everybody when that happens, which never fucking happens because power is self-perpetuating and anybody who doesn't understand that is foolish and in their own way is unconsciously driven by that cycle where they seek revenge. They seek abuse. They seek to keep the wheels going. They keep, even if they changed and, and dismantled the deeper structure, they would still keep that power structure going, even if there was no money. And there was, but there were still these subtle abuses of power in the home, in the workplace, in relationships. So long as that hierarchy of, of you know, the, and specifically the, the, the deprivation of need, you know, I have power over you. That's what rules the world. That's what makes the world go wrong. So long as that exists in any form, we're, we're not there. We're not there yet. And we have to keep analyzing ourselves. We have to keep scrutinizing those power structures. That was a long tangent. Yeah, no, but I, but I agree with you. I mean, that's, that's hundred percent the, the, the drive of anarchism to reduce the hierarchies of power eternally, whatever new one arises, reduce that one too. You know, just it's the, it's the, it's a, it's an eternal struggle towards that state. Well, the, the, I think the idea of uh, something like a, a Venus project or a resource-based economy and, optimizing human resources truly it's to it's to make society the purpose of society to cultivate health collaboration you know to create abundance and to educate people to meet people's needs so greatly that if we meet everybody's needs and they're in this healthy position where there is actually a genuine sense of love in our world where everybody knows that they can try new things and and they're not going to fail you know they can they can pursue a passion. They can learn to play the fucking fiddle or whatever it is that they want to do. They can learn how to create food or if they if they have this this dream to end a disease or, you know, invent some great thing, they can do it. And society itself is a mechanism of the sharing of skills and education and the means for people, the means of the production of ideas and innovations. That we that that's the purpose of society is to make it so that every person is educated to the point where they are the master of their own potential. That's a great world. That's a fucking world I want to live in. I don't want to live in a world where the God King or the philosopher King rules over me. I don't want that. I don't care. I don't care if I have health care. I don't want to be ruled. I want to be, I want, I'm free. I live my life totally free. Honestly, I really do. And I, I don't let money stand in the way of that. I don't let anybody tell me what to do if I don't want to. And I, I just, I want everybody to, to experience that. Works for me, <laughs> I think. And, I, and I, I'm not a parasite. I, I really strive to give back always and to grow and learn. And I think this works for me and that's my personal experience. And I, I know it can work for everyone. I know that even the dumbest, most violent, angry, abusive person, if they're put into the right circumstances, they're put into the right community, can be that all that shit can be nurtured out of them. 
yeah, I just wanted to um, briefly marry what uh, Matthew was saying uh, about the algorithms and how it comes down to who has the power. The fact that we can use algorithms to market globally and also become marketable ourselves, market the consumer, that that's like a lot to wrap your head around. Like that's that's a lot of power. And, and the fact that we have the ability to do that and it's being used to perpetuate a materialized society, a material-oriented society, rather than responsibly manage resources. I think that just speaks uh, volumes to the fact, if not just completely settles the argument as to the fact that people that are in power are not there to help anybody. They're just there to perpetuate their own status. I would add to that that the system is built to perpetuate that. This is what I meant earlier when I was saying like the anarchism is often a very systems analytic approach, but I'm a more systems analytic sort of person than, than normal. And the way That's I look at I like it is you, that, Daniel. <laughs> good. I'm glad. I'm glad somebody finds that appealing, but like, you know, the way I look at it is it's one big unified power machine. Okay. And a machine is built with the need for specific components. Every component is, is gauged to the next component that it is in contact with, right? If two gears are turning with one another and one turns a little too fast or a little too slow, the machine doesn't function, okay? The, the gear has to turn at a certain rate. It must be reliable. The system desires reliability from all of its components. And therefore, it doesn't matter who sits in any of the seats of power. None of that <coughs> matters, Right, it, it's observable. Look, look at the system as it's as it's unfolding before you. Just, just recognize that there's like some tiny variance in the rate that the gear can spin, but the gear carries out its purpose one way or the other. The machine has its own momentum; it has its own end that it is moving towards, and that is the perpetuation of further power. Right, that is the consolidation of of its power. That is the elimination. Of, of opposition and conflict and the absorption of all of that conflict into furthering the system. So like earlier when you mentioned that people are like, oh, COVID's clearly got to be some kind of conspiracy and like that's what's real. It's not a conspiracy. It's that the machine is built to absorb conflicts. It is built when, when the conflict arises, it just goes, oh yeah, I can exploit that right? Any conflict can be exploited. It is built as a recuperation machine. Its purpose is co-option and the usage of conflict in order to further its power. It has been built around that central premise. So of course it's going to do all of these things when COVID arises. That's what it's going to do no matter what situation arises. It's just going to be better at exploiting certain ones. Back to the idea of intentionality, that is the intention of our society. Deeper than the structure, it is the intention that drives it, and it is it is an intention that is latent and unquestioned, unexamined psychologically, you know, as a symptom of, a, of an abusive structure. And there is no better materialization of the intentions that drive our world toward profiting off conflict than the social media algorithms, because they literally confront you with what they know, they know is going to piss you off. They know it. They know what you don't like. They know what you do like. Or entice you. Entice you with something that you can't have. So we've heard the term dog-eat-dog uh, dog world. You know, uh, I think a more accurate term would be we live in an exploit or be exploited world. It's really down to that. 
every single aspect of our lives. We're either being exploited or having to exploit someone to experience life, to, to just survive. Like thriving's out the window. Like I don't even remember the last time I heard anyone say how they're how much they're enjoying life. You know, it's all about I'm having a blast. How much can I uh, allow myself to be exploited, and how much can I exploit this person over here? You know, I, this is all white noise to the four of us. We all know this very well. But again, I I like to be sure that we make these uh, most common, uh, you know, like. Uh, bottom rung terms very visible and and put them out there so people uh that are still just introducing themselves to these concepts don't feel so alienated and they're like yeah that sounds familiar i resonate with that i think that's what i've been grasping at i think that's what my gut's been telling me you know i mentioned how the machine is built he mentioned the intentionality underlying it and i think these are really the two main aspects so like it, recently some people have been kind of talking about it in this like hardware software metaphor where it's like you know the hardware is just the way all the systems are physically structured the way that capital flows the the you know what builds accumulation of capital and all that that's the that's the 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 hardware of the system but then there is this aspect you know these these uh, justifying philosophies are what allow the system to function towards those ends right like this belief for example in meritocracy is is very much like a driving uh, philosophical component of how this system functions uh, people believe that those in power deserve to be empowered that they have merit and that's why they're there um, you know, as I've discussed, white supremacy is a huge problem. It uh, gives a lot of people uh, this feeling as if they're better than their fellow people within their class. That's super helpful for the system as it stands because it, it keeps, their, keeps their working class split among itself and makes it weak and uh, also reifies a justification for why the, the system is, of course, dominantly uh, white and why it has this long history of exploitation. And there are I'm gonna, a lot I'm of gonna read examples. a real, real quick. Here, I'm gonna read a tweet here from uh, one of our comrades, Prentice, who we had on a, our episode on the military industrial complex, who I'm sure we'll have on again soon. Uh, he's killing it on social media. Celestial underscore beacon on Instagram, or no, he's it was Prentice underscore the underscore menace on Twitter, and he's blowing up right now. But it, he says meritocracy is the wholesale gaslighting of an entire nation. It's the mindfuck where anyone who can see the nepotism, the fraternities, the unmerited favors that determines job opportunities is told they are negative or insane and summarily outcast. A society has a bunch of these different justifying philosophies. They're all really important for the reason why people do not rebel, right? The, re the reason why people do not try to reclaim their alienated power is because they don't think they deserve it. It goes back exactly what you said about that abuser metaphor, right? Stockholm Syndrome. They've, gotten, they've, they've come to accept that they deserve their subjugation. You know, you've got, you've got two options to being abused. Option number one is revolt and say, you know, get off my back, get your boot off my neck, right? And option number two is just to give in and to accept that the boot is supposed to be on your neck. Well, all of the history of hierarchical society has been built to convince you to do the latter, right? That's its whole part. The way that everything about it has been built is towards that exact purpose, to convince you you deserve the boot on your neck. That, that were you to not have a boot on your neck, you wouldn't even be able to walk. 
right? Oh, you you think you can stand up and walk after I get the boot off your neck? You're wrong. You wouldn't even be able to walk. It's impossible. You can't walk. Like, that's that's the way this society has been built. Great analogy. And I think I think an important point there is that uh, that power itself. You know, to anybody who, if we have any bill, million, millionaires or billionaires listening to this show, we don't want to we don't want to exclude anybody from the new world to come. So I think. A lot of people benefit from this system and they don't really, they can't really see how deeply fucked up it is. And or maybe they see that it could be optimized better. Maybe they see that it could be more efficiently managed. You know, maybe they, maybe they, maybe they know. I think we all know in our bones that this is wrong. Like I was talking to in one of my group chats today about toxic masculinity and the, the basic driver of this is people are taught from a very young age that they need to hide their true self, their sensitivity, their in intuitiveness, their feelings. And um, they have to hide that. And if they feel at any point that somebody can see that they have these feelings that we all have, they are taught to point to somebody else, to peck, them, peck down in the order and divert attention away from them because it's their insecurity. And these people, these powerful people who have gotten to the top of the pecking order, through this mechanism of power and always pecking down and bullying. And, you know, Trump is a great example of this. He's just a classic schoolyard bully. Uh, that these people are victims of their own power because you can kind of see it in their eyes. You know, they, they're watery. They're kind of looking around all the time. Like they know they've done fucked up shit. Even unconsciously, they know they've done fucked up things to get where they are. You know, not all people in power, power, well, yes, all people who engage in the power structure engage in corruption and duplicity and exploitation in some way because they have to, because that's the structure of the system. It's not that these people are failed individuals, though I think we all do have agency and need to be accountable for our actions again and again and again. But these people who are powerful, they are malignantly affected by their power. It is corrosive. It hurts them. It dehumanizes them. It pushes them to dominate other people and themselves because they are admitting people need to be ruled. People need to be dominated. And if I don't do it, somebody else is going to dominate me. So even the people at the very top, they know, they know they have to keep their workers believing in the meritocracy. They know they need to engage, you know, spend millions and billions of dollars on, you know, uh, media mindfuck movies that make them think that they need superheroes to come and save them and all of this stuff. They need this cultural perpetuation of this cycle because they know that they've done bad things to people and that, and that the society around them is crumbling and that the world itself is ending, even if they're not aware of it. They are, they are on autopilot. They are automatically driven by the cycles of that abusiveness in them. And, it, and really, to, for them to recognize the, in, the inherent potentiality of all human beings, of all human life, and that, that sacredness, that interconnectedness that we all have is for them to liberate themselves from these power structures, to say that I don't have to abuse, I don't have to, you know, uh, I don't have to live like this. And it's like if, if, if we can genuinely get to this point of, of true connection, true communication among all peoples, then that is a revolution, truly. It, it doesn't necessitate a violent seizure of power because so many revolutionary movements just seize, just seek to seize power. They just want to seize back that power so that they're in power. Oh, now, now the working class is in power, but that's not addressing the fundamental structure of the cycle of power and the abuse that's baked into it. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. That's, that's the critique that goes all the way back to the late 1800s for the anarchists. That's what they've been saying to statists for a very long time. They're like, 
guys, this is not a revenge plot. Like this is not just a way for you to like get back at the the previous society. Like this is not, you know, you're you shouldn't be just trying to seize all of the the structure of power as it stands now and then hope to turn it back on the people who wronged you. The point is you have to abolish the structure that brought this into place. You have to abolish the very relations that allowed these abuses, this exploitation, this this alienation of power of the masses to happen to begin with. In, in the only way, there's only one way to do that, and that is to unalienate the power. It is it is to give the power back to its root. It is to bring the power back to its root and to allow those who actually hold the the fundamental creative impulse of society to to actually organize their society as they please to their whims. Daniel, uh, we're going to go ahead and start wrapping it up here. As a final thought, I was wondering if there's any any uh, you know like call to action or anything that you would like to see our listeners do, or you know if there's if there's anybody out there that says I want to you know uh, take part uh, in this movement, what would what would you suggest things that they could do? Well. Uh, first, I would say if you have any explicitly anarchist groups in your area, join them. At least go to their meetings. You don't have to immediately just become an organizer or anything, but find out if there are. If there are not, which I should add, most places there are. For example, there's like Food Not Bombs in most locations. Uh, Black Rose has a lot of different locations. Even places like the IWW often has a lot of anarchists working inside of it. Look for mutual aid projects that are taking place in your area. Look for if there is a symbiosis member group, that is also a great place to look. And if those don't exist, I would say start one. And I know that sounds like a tall order, but it really only takes two or three people to start an organization and two or three people that are moving in the same direction can actually get a lot more done than you think they can. Um, if you have to start as a reading group, begin, begin readings into things that are going to inform your politics, begin to understand what has happened in the past. Ask yourself what the past examples of, of your praxis being carried out are. Learn from people's mistakes, learn the theory that will inform your better action. Obviously there's, I can't give the perfect answer to the whole globe, but in a general sense, that's, that's what I would recommend. You know, we're in the time of social revolution, not, not seizure at the moment. Thank you so much for coming on our show. We really appreciate it. It was so, so much great information and uh, insight that you have to offer. So really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Um, can you tell us how we find you online? If you go to YouTube, uh, my channel is Anarch, A-N-A-R-K. Um, on Twitter, I am Anarch YouTube or at Anarch YouTube. And I have a Patreon. If you like the, the work that I'm doing, um, that's a way to make it to where maybe I could spend a little bit more time doing that work instead of working two jobs. Awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much. Um, anybody else have anything to add before we wrap it up? I, I would just like to say to anybody out there who still thinks that anarchy or anarchism is a scary word. I mean, does Daniel, does Daniel sound dangerous? Does he sound violent? Does he sound like an unruly, unreasonable chap? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think in my experience, the majority of anarchist activity is feeding people. It's, it's, it's two or three people getting together and helping someone, helping somebody realize their potential and, and just you know, really communicating with people on that level of, of living, of living together, being together, just recognizing that fundamental humanity and that fundamental sanctity in human life and that 
The solution is in all of us coming together, seizing that power, and working to find our best in each other. If you don't feel that sanctity in yourself, if you don't feel that power in yourself, you know, seek somebody else and and try to see it in them. And I think if we all focus on other people's needs, if we all try to uplift the person next to us, it will come back around to us. And that is a true revolution, not a, a central authority that is going to, you know, claim back this power. It's the power in all of us. That's what it truly looks like. Is and, and that starts, I think, in questioning the power structures in us and the inferiority complex that drives them. We have an inferiority complex because we, we have lost touch with our greatness. We've lost touch with our potential and our essential, conditionally, socially enforced and environmental nature that we are all capable of anything. We're all capable of, of any of the abuses of power that we see the worst people in the world doing, just as we're capable of the greatest good that anyone is capable of doing. So I, I invite you to seek that in yourself and in the people around you. And that's, that's what anarchy is. That's, that's a stateless society, a, a world where we just can be ourselves, truly. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Moneyless Society podcast. Remember to like, comment, share, or subscribe, because that is how we fight back against the algorithms that suppress alternate media. You can also directly support our efforts at www.patreon.com forward slash Moneyless Society. In solidarity, be well.